Hey everyone, if you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my Anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Hello everyone, this is Derek Taylor from Controversies in Church History. This is a special episode, bonus episode of Controversies in Church History. This is a recording I made of a talk. I gave on Saturday, September 25th at Christ the King uh, Parish in Kansas City, Missouri to a group, uh, to a Catholic singles group uh, that was having a meetup that day. So uh, it's a little uh, talk on the uh, the Catholic Church between, uh, in, from World War II to Vatican II in the post-war area leading up to the Second Vatican Council just to give some uh, the group uh, some background on the things that led into the council and to the to the, the upheavals that happened after. So I uh, hope you enjoy it. Uh, enjoy a little bonus episode. Should be back with new episodes, hopefully starting in November. Thank you guys. Take care and God bless. And that, uh, that Bible is a relic of a bygone era that no longer exists. That's what I kind of want to get to you today is, okay, what things were like in the church before the deluge <laughs> that happened in the 1960s. And, um, and starting in the immediate aftermath of World War II, which is a turning point in many ways. And what happens in, uh, after World War II, generally across the Western world, especially in the United States, is there is a general uh, post-war religious revival. Uh, there's an uptick not just in the Catholic Church, but in other churches in Western Europe and the United States, of religious practice. Tendence at uh, weekly services go up, membership goes up. Uh, you have, uh, in the United States anyway, you have vocation levels shoot up after the war. Uh, less so in Europe, this is something I'll come back to. There has been, since the late 19th century in Europe, a slow decline of attendance, membership, things like this. But in certain countries in Europe, France, UK, I know for a fact, you have a slight uptick. You have people coming back. You have definitely have churches being built. You need them in Europe because they've had half of them destroyed. But there seems to be an uptick after the war. And in terms of what people's religious life was like um, before the war, before I said before the war, I mean before Vatican II, um, before the 1960s, uh, people had, most people, if they lived in devout homes, would have had a rich devotional life. You would have things like family rosaries at night would have been a, a, a commonplace in devout homes. 40 hours devotion, stuff like this. Sunday evening benediction, these things would have been fairly commonplace if you grew up in that kind of home. This is the era in the 1950s of, uh, I remember his first name, Father Peyton and his rosary crusade. You know who he was? This is the, What's the phrase? Uh, the family that prays together stays together. That's him. Uh, he would go into, you know, fill stadiums with these rosary craze. Not just, not just in the United States, but also in the UK in the 1950s. So you do have this, uh, you have this really rich devotional life that's available to Catholics, which doesn't really exist, obviously, as much anymore. And in terms of parish life, things that have been so, so different uh, if you grew up in the po immediate post-war era, especially because from the early 20th century, uh, in the Anglophone, Anglophone world, United States, the UK, a lot of these parishes would be ethnic parishes uh, because of immigration. United States, of course, late 19th century, early 20th century, is a lot of immigration before it gets cut, cut off uh, by Congress in the 1920s. And also in uh, Britain, because you have a bunch of Irish coming over to England in the 19th and 20th centuries. And so you have these very, very tight-knit parishes, uh, as you do in Europe in many places in uh, places like the Low Countries, Belgium, the Netherlands, they have actually a term for this called pillarization. 
And what that means is, historians, is they talk about how Catholic communities sort of created their own little worlds, schools, or businesses, and stuff like this. And so where you live in your parish, that was literally your world. Like, you knew everybody at work went to the parish, everybody went to school, went to the parish school. Um, there's another term for it that's less, that's less um, uh, flattering, the term is ghetto. Uh, I'll come back to this uh, in a moment, but this is the idea that it's a closed off world. It's very narrow, it's very insular, but it's also one that really, it nourishes the faith. Uh, um, sociologists religion talk about plausibility structures for religious belief. What they mean is you get reinforcement every day. Every aspect of your life reinforces your faith in a way that for reasons that will come apparent, they're actually changing during this period. Delta doesn't happen anymore. But for most people growing up in the 40s and 50s, that would have been uh, more or less the default at the time. Same time, after the po in the post-war, especially in the immediate post-war period, you do have Catholics in the States, in the UK, less to a lesser extent, but even Europe, becoming prominent in social and cultural life in a way they probably hadn't before in many decades. There is, in the post-war period, a literary revival going on. Um, both in Anglophone, Anglophone world, definitely. Uh, we're talking about people like Graham Greene, the novelist, uh, Flannery O'Connor uh, in the States. Uh, I, guess this, I guess Tolkien is still writing, J.R.R. Tolkien, you must know who Tolkien is. He's writing in the post-war period. In, even in France, I believe George Bernanos was another famous novelist. He lives until 1948 or so. Uh, Francois Mauriac wins the Nobel Prize in 1952. He's a Catholic novelist, devout Catholic. So they're coming into problems there. Hollywood, of course, loves Catholics, at least in their films in the post-war period. This is the era of things like the Song of Bernadette. I want to say the Bells of St. Mary's before World War II, but there are all these, you know, quo vadis, all these sword and sandal films, some of which are pitched in a sort of Catholic vein. Uh, and just in general, in post-war social life, even in places like France, where there had been a real conflict in the early part of the 20th century, if you don't know, they passed a law which separated church and state in 1905 in France. There's a lot of bitterness. Catholics, you know, come into their own even there. They, they have more social credibility than they had before. Even, and this only lasts for a few years after the war, even in Germany after the war, the church was seen to be one of the institutions that had actually stood up a little bit to Hitler. So it has a little more respectability than it did before the war as well. And also, uh, the role of the priesthood in this period, it's, it's, again, I don't know um, what your experience is. I'm assuming it's nothing like this, but just to give you an idea of in what reverence um, priests were held in this period. I'm sure you all know who Alec Guinness was, Obi-Wan Kenobi, the actor who played Obi-Wan Kenobi in, the, uh, uh, in Star Wars. Uh, he, um, he's a convert to Catholicism. He converted in 1958, actually. And uh, he tells a story in his memoirs about one of the things that led him to the church. He was filming a, a movie in France uh, actually was playing Father Brown, this is G.K. Chesterton's detective. Uh, and was, they were filming in a little village, and at the other end of the town, he had his hotel room near the train station. He walked into town to have a drink with the rest of the cast. As he left to go walk back to his hotel, a little French kid, a little seven or eight-year-old boy, ran up to him, because he had his you know, fake clericals on, and you know, started saying, mon père, mon père, grabbed his hand and started walking with him, right, all the way down to his hotel room, babbling in French the whole time. And he said he didn't say anything, his French was too bad to do that, but by the time the kid, you know, Bonsoir Montpellier went and left off that, he, he, he was a nominal Anglican before he, uh, before he became a Catholic, and he said one of his big hangups was he, he thought Catholic priests were creepy and, you know, scheming and crafty and stuff like this, and this 
sort of absolute sense of trust this little kid had to just come up and say hi and start talking like that. One of the things that led him to become Catholic later on. That's just an anecdote, just about the childlike almost. And this is not just for kids, but adults. They, you know, you take what your priest says almost absolutely on trust. Um, this is still something very much uh, a part of people's lives back then. The other thing that's very different about religious life in this post-war era of revival that is very different today is the influence of bishops. I mean, social influence. Even in places like, again, Germany, unless uh, not France as much, but places like the Netherlands, if a bishop came out against something, uh, politically speaking, uh, and told Catholic voters not to vote on it, they, for the most part, wouldn't vote, they'd vote against something. They definitely had this influence in the States because of immigration, and it was an immigrant church. But even in those European countries, they had that kind of authority, social authority. Uh, it, they also had, I don't know if anybody's seen the film, probably not, um, Hail Caesar, made a couple of years ago. This is a Coen Brothers movie. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's not that great, but it's about this, um, and the guy's a Catholic, the main character in the movie is a Catholic, he's a producer, he's trying to produce this film about the life of Christ, it's transparently based on Ben-Hur, by the way, if you don't know what that is, and um, the film actually begins with the guy in, in, in the confessional, by the way, it's very interesting. Anyway, in the, the movie, he has to go meet with a, a, a Catholic priest, a rabbi, an Orthodox priest, a Protestant minister, to get to okay the film. And this is something that's realistic. Back in, the day, back in those days, if a, a Catholic, power in front of Catholic prelate came out against the movie, Hollywood would just scuttle it. Uh, probably some of you probably don't know who Cecil B. DeMille was. This is a major film. The Ten Commandments, right? The 1950s one with Carlton Heston. He did that one, did the earlier version of this. Uh, great film. He actually, did, by the way, did a really, really interesting uh, silent version of, well, The Life of Christ, which you should actually see. It's very interesting. Uh, he, was a, he was an Anglican, a fairly devout one from what I understand, had a very interesting personal life to Cecil B. DeMille, I'll put it, leave it there. Um, but um, he, at one point in his life, wanted to make a film about the Virgin Mary. Um, but he didn't do it. Why? Because on the one hand, the evangelicals would hate it, but he also was afraid of what the, the Catholics would say about it. So bishops had an inordinate amount of influence, which, as Father Lockwood indicated in his talk, they just simply do not have that kind of social authority anymore for a variety of reasons. Besides the post-war religious revival, the other thing about what's happening in the church is it's becoming, it's already had been this, but it's becoming much more a global church than it had been before after the war for a variety of reasons. Partly because of the impetus of, of Pius XII, who was the pope at the time. I see the book that's going around the, uh, the, uh, the Bible. Uh, partly because he had been, I mean, he's someone who had an international vision. In fact, when he becomes pope in 1939, he appoints, I believe he's the first pope to appoint indigenous bishops for uh, Asia and Africa. And one of the things to note about the church in prior to Vatican II, sometimes you get this, you get defenders of the council uh, saying things like, well, you know, the, the explosion of the faith in Africa is due to the council, and this is totally false. Um, the uh, evangelization of Africa was actually undertaken by missionaries in the reign of Pius XI and Pius XII. Pius XII uh, actually issued a, an encyclical in 1958 uh, called Fide, uh, Fidei Donum, uh, talking about the church in Africa. And the church was actually kind of, in this sense, progressive in that sphere. They actually supported you know, African countries, for example, in their decolonization efforts. They were on the side of, uh, of the faithful there. Uh, and so it's missionaries in that area who are really responsible for this. People, by the way, like Marcel Lefebvre, who was a missionary for 30 years uh, in Africa, uh, so this is one of the things when I say it's becoming more um, 
more global in this, uh, this regard. It's also becoming more global because it is engaging with, and then Father Lockwood mentioned this, a global fight against communism. Pius XII, from well before he became uh, pope, saw communism as the main threat in Europe and worldwide. They are, the, is the Vatican very much involved in efforts to defeat, for example, communist parties at the polls in the immediate post-war uh, uh, post um, scene. In 1948, for example, there's a big election, the first election in Italy, and there's a big, powerful communist party. And they work together, we're not really sure how, with, with the Americans, uh, the American government, to, to defeat them at the polls. Uh, we know the CIA, by the way, gave the Italians money. Um, there was a guy, his name was James Angleton, uh, whose contact uh, in, uh, in Italy was none other than Giovanni Battisti Montini, who would be well, Paul VI later on. So uh, they gave them lots of money. What they did with it, I don't know. But they defeated, managed to defeat the communists in several countries with the help of the Americans. And there is actually, there is actually um, <clears throat> involvement elsewhere. In fact, the Vatican, I know, uh, tries to influence, again, American policy for, uh, in places like, for example, Vietnam. Um, they're the ones who push for them to appoint when they sort of unofficially take over in Vietnam. Uh, Sigmund Rhee, he's the first president of uh, South Vietnam. He's a Catholic. Um, Vietnamese have been evangelized since the 18th century by the French, and so he comes from an old Catholic family. They have influence in that regard. Uh, he also, Pius XII does, and this is something, he was very anti-communist, but he was also a diplomat by training. He'd been the nuncio to Germany before World War II. And um, he, uh, he uh, had the holy office. This is the holy office, it's called the CDF now, but he had them issue a ruling in 1949, basically saying you could be excommunicated for being a member of the Communist Party. So this is probably the most proactive thing he ever did. He was, again, a very cautious guy for the most part, but they took this deadly seriously. And uh, it's part of this uh, engagement with modernity that Pius XII wanted to do in his reign. And in fact, broader, but outside the Vatican, you also have efforts, and Pius was a part of this as well, having been a nuncio to Germany, he actually spearheaded efforts to rebuild Germany after the war. Uh, he was very uh, thankful, actually, for donations from America, where the, a lot of the money came from that he sent to these people in uh, post-war Germany. But you also have efforts to rebuild the continent by Catholic politicians in this period. Um, people like Konrad Adenauer, who became the first, West Chancellor, uh, first Chancellor of West Germany. Remember, after the war, Germany gets divided up between the Soviets and the Western powers. Uh, West Germany gets created, and Konrad Adenauer was a, a devout Catholic. He was a, I believe he was a Knight of Malta, one of these, one of these uh, crusading orders or something like this. Great statesman, had been mayor of Cologne, opposed the Nazis before, um, before the Second World War. And he, along with several other Catholic politicians, uh, Robert Schumann in, in France, Alcide uh, Gaspari in Italy, who had a somewhat tense relationship with Pius XII, because um, Pius wasn't, uh, they're, 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 the Catholic party in Italy was called the Christian Democrats, I guess they're still there, but um, Pius wasn't necessarily on board with all the things he was doing, but he eventually listened to Gaspari. The point is, they, they helped build what's called Christian democracy uh, in Europe in this period. They build potentially the foundations for the European Union, which doesn't sound like a great thing, <laughs> maybe, but at the time it really was inspired by a Catholic uh, ideal of sort of fraternity among nations and trying to rebuild things after the war. And uh, these people deserve a lot of credit for this, these Catholic politicians, so they're prominent in doing this. Of course, the church is also suffering uh, because of communism in the post-war era. Places like Hungary get taken over by the Soviets. 
You have, you know, cardinals, um, lots of, you know, uh, prelates locked up, executed. I believe Cardinal Mincensi is the, the, the famous one who gets locked up and I believe dies in prison. If I'm not mistaken, I can't remember off the top of my head. I'm getting this confused. Uh, in Poland, they just beatified the one in Poland who got, uh, who um, was put in prison there. I can't remember his name. Stefan, which I, I can't pronounce Polish names. I apologize. Uh, but uh, Poland as well, of course, is taken over by the, uh, by, uh, the Soviets. Uh, in the Ukraine, uh, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, the Byzantines were in communion with Rome. Uh, their church is officially liquidated in 1946 by Joseph Stalin. He issued, has the Russian Catholic Church. They return them to the Russian Catholic Church, Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, and so it has to go underground for the next 45 years. Uh, as uh, happens also in China after 1949 and the Communist Revolution there. So this is the reason why Pius XII is so insistent on this. Uh, and then finally, I'm going to mention briefly, in Latin America you have, in the post-war period, you're going to have, I guess you will, later on as well, um, the church facing problems with military regimes, okay? Because you have conservative regimes get overthrown, there's military juntas. Um, so they're dealing with that sort of problem uh, in the post-war period, as well as problems of, uh, with regards to industrialization, which is kind of leads me to my, my next part of this talk, is um, all the social and economic changes that are going on in the 1940s and 50s that are actually going to sort of uh, change things that are actually at work even in the, the immediate post-war period. That are gonna, they're going to undermine, I say undermine, they're going to change that sort of very tight-knit sort of Catholic world focus on the parish. And the first of these, again, Father Rock was already hinted at this, is the baby boom. Uh, as there is a religious revival after the war, there's also a baby boom. Again, the United States is the sort of uh, headwaters for this, but pretty much in every Western nation as well, you have an uptick in births. This happens when people anticipate good times happening. They have kids, they think they have the money for it. This is pretty much to be uh, expected. But one of the things, you may have heard the phrase demography is destiny. What this does, this big spike in births between 45 and, say, 1960, is it means you just have a lot more people in that generation. It means you have numbers so that when they grow up, they can impose their will on people because they're just more people in the pipeline, which is part of what explains what happens in the 1960s. The other thing that happens to change things in the 1960s is post-war affluence. Um, things recover pretty quickly. In America, of course, almost overnight because we went from a wartime footing to turn that into you know, what became, I mean, America was the colossus, I mean, in, a, in an unprecedented way. By the end of the 1940s, one historian estimates that 42% of the world's income uh, was American. 42%. That, and yes, if you're wondering, by the way, that is more than any other, any other empire entity in human history. Which, by the way, was never going to last. That, the reason for that is half the world's economy lay in ruin because of war. But it meant that America, for about 10 years, was, had, there were no two superpowers. There was one. So that makes people feel good. But this also happens in Europe. By the middle of the 1950s, and sometimes you, you know, hear historians talk about this, they'll talk about the Western miracle, they'll talk about the, the 30 glorious years in France. By the mid-1950s, there's, there's a revival underway in these places. So you have people, with the help of American aid, by the way, the Marshall Plan, uh, as well as um, the United States putting the bill for their defense, so they can spend money on social welfare programs. But pretty much within a few years, there's already people, you know, Things like, definitely in America, TV sets becoming common in homes. Uh, this takes place a little bit later in France. Most people, even by the 1960 in France, don't have telephones in their homes, but by the end of the 60s, they do. 
but again, all the sort of you know convenience items, vacuum cleaners, refrigerator people didn't have, they're all having now. That's, you laugh, but it makes a big difference in the way people live their lives. They're more comfortable, which changes the way they live and think. Another thing that happens, uh, which, and I mentioned these, these economic changes would have happened anyway, one way or the other. Another is suburbanization. Again, people are buying cars in the post-war period. People are leaving those, those inner city parishes and going out to suburbs. You know, they're just more mobile than they used to be, right? And it's a great thing to have all those, you know, that world unto itself, but maybe you don't like your in-laws, you can get the, get the hell away from them and go out to the suburbs and all those, those sorts of things. And so this is undermining, again, uh, the integrity of the parish as well. Another thing that's uh, undermining this in the long run will be the fact that, again, you have a lot of kids. You'll have a big expansion of education in the post-war period. Again, the United States is the, you know, the biggest expansion, but pretty much everywhere in Europe, at least if you're in the middle classes, you have more and more people going to universities. By the mid-1960s in France, they almost will have room, literally, for all the students they have which means, of course, they're being exposed more and more to secular ideas. So this is something in the back of my mind. And it's partly because of this, because of uh, this uptick in affluence, this uptick in uh, baby boom, that you begin to get, and this uptick in social, you know, social respectability that comes out of the war, you begin to get talk in the 1950s about leaving the Catholic ghetto. And this, is actually, this is actually a famous uh, essay written by, I remember, his first name, I think it's John Tracy Ellis. He's a theologian at Notre Dame. Uh, wrote an uh, article, I don't remember the title, in 1955. Basically um, accusing American Catholics of being anti-intellectual. They're not open, they don't know the best of secular thought. They don't know, they're not open to the world and all this stuff. They need to leave their Catholic ghetto and go out into the world, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot, and that, if you read that article, I mention it because he's very concerned what secular universities think of Catholic universities. He's very concerned that they don't seem to match up with what secular universities are doing. There is this really intense desire for uh, acceptance from the world outside of, well, your Catholic parish, basically, in the 1950s. Uh, among which uh, is that there's a, a desire for uh, more, uh, I don't know, better relationships with other religious faiths, particularly Protestants, especially in the States. I had, um, um, uh, I remember hearing a talk from a, a former Anglican minister who became a Catholic priest before the Second Vatican Council, talking about how he uh, taught at an Episcopal school up in New York City in the 1950s, and he had a counterpart um, down the road who was a, a Catholic school, and they would actually sometimes see each other with their classes going down the street. They would never even look at each other or talk to each other, right? Very frozen. After the post-war period, when people are all becoming more affluent, there would be less and less social distinctions. They want to have more open relationships. So this is part of the social winds of change. The other thing that's actually a part of the change itself, and I have to mention this, because it's not technically post-war, but it's the war itself. The war itself undermines, I think, the solidity of the parish. Why? Because you have men going off to boot camp and going halfway across the country and going, uh, being exposed to people of different faiths, different ethnicities, different backgrounds in ways they would not have otherwise. You have um, uh, you know, just exposure in that regard. In the United States, for example, in some places you have wives go with their husbands like they may go from the East Coast to the West Coast basically training and stay there. There's migrations all across the country. So this is uh, gonna undermine, in some ways, the effects of uh, what had been a fairly solid you know, Catholic world. 
You also have other undercurrents in the church. I'll call undercurrents of, I don't know how to put this, dissatisfaction or other things in the church. I won't go over these too much, partly because Father mentioned some of them before the Second Vatican Council. Starting in the 1940s, there were uh, people that were discontented with the way theology was taught in seminaries. He mentioned these, they're usually grouped together called the Nouvelle Theologie. So there are challenges to the, the reigning Thomistic way of uh, training people in the seminary and teaching the faith. There's also a lot of talk about something called the new morality in certain circles in the 1950s. And what new morality, uh, new morality amounts to basically is more relativism. <laughs> I mention this only because one of the proponents of this stuff, even before the Second Vatican Council, is a theologian named Bernard Haring, if you know this name. Um, this is someone who becomes one of the leading opponents of Humanae Vitae uh, in the 1960s, wants the church to change its teaching on contraception. He is also, if you don't recall this, Pope Francis has said several times, this is his favorite moral theologian. So you already have this stuff in the pipeline well before the war. You also have attempts to, um, among theologians to, uh, to get the church to alter its teachings on relationships between church and state. Uh, there are a couple of people, I'll mention them here. Jacques Maritain, um, the French philosopher, ambassador to the, to the Holy See at one point, as uh, a Thomist, but he wants, he kind of publishes several books in what, which he basically wants, and he's thinking of the experience of the Christian Democratic Party in Italy and the you know, experience of post-war era, wants the church to basically go all in on democracy, on secular democracy, to embrace ideas of separation of church and state. But the, uh, Maybe the more, more influential figure there, perhaps, is John Courtney Murray, an American Jesuit at Georgetown, who spends the better part of a decade, um, um, he's actually put under some suspicion by Rome at some point. I should mention that, uh, Father didn't mention this. Several of those Nouvelle theologians at certain points are censured or, or, um, or otherwise sort of silenced by Rome at some point in the 19, late 1940s and 1950s. Pius XII actually issued an encyclical criticizing uh, and condemning some of the tendencies of, of those thinkers in 1950 called Humani Generis. So there's serious like uh, fighting about this. But I mentioned John Courtney Murray because he, he, he has this almost 10 year back and forth with other theologians in the American, uh, in American church about this. And in fact, there's a book written about five or six years ago, and I can't remember the guy's name. Uh, I can't remember the title of the book, but it's an interesting book. But he made the, he argues that, in fact, he says he has documentation that John Courtney Murray was actually a CIA asset, um, that he actually had a contact at the CIA, because if you don't know, the CIA was in everything in the, in the Cold War. I mean, literally, the, I'll give you an example. What, is, what he's claiming is that the CIA was paying, trying to get theologians to, to, um, to embrace American-style religious liberty for Cold War purposes. Again, they were thinking of um, what's going on in the Soviet Union, yes, sir. David Wenham. David that's the guy, yeah. And I say this because a few years ago, I don't think I would have listened to this and thought it was a, as a, a conspiracy theory. It's actually, it sounds very plausible to me, actually. If you don't know, the CIA had a, had a massive program where they funded novelists and writers. They actually published their own books. Um, they got people like, you know, I don't know who Vladimir Nabokov was. Vladimir Nabokov was a huge literary figure. They were producing propaganda for them. The CIA in the 19th. There's a whole there's a whole book about it written about 20 30 years ago. I can't remember the name of it. Would not surprise me at all uh, if they were actually trying to do this. We do I do know for a fact that the uh, Truman administration wanted to use wanted to yeah they wanted to use the World Council of Churches. You know what this is? This is a liberal sort of ecumenical liberal Protestant ecumenical organization. In the 1950s, they tried to influence them. The Soviets got to them first, and they became a front for the for the Soviets in the 1970s. So they were definitely interested in pushing that. 
And so and I say this because John Courtney Murray basically is the person who's going to be influential at the Second Vatican Council, it helped drafting their Declaration on Religious Liberty. So it's a fascinating thing to think about. Other things you also have that are going on, undercurrents of discontent, you also have liturgical reform under Pius XII, which if you don't, I won't go through this too much, because some of you may know more, more about this than I do, but there was a reform of Holy Week ceremonies in 1955 by a committee uh, uh, formed by Pius XII. And in fact, I won't go into this too much detail, this, this came out of the concerns of the so-called liturgical movement. This goes back to the pre-World War I era. And in fact, the original founders of that movement, actually, they actually had a good intention to sort of get people to, to understand and get more out of the actual liturgy. Something went wrong in the post-war period, I don't, I'm not aware of, but they began to get a lot of weird ideas. And it kind of went off the rails in the 1950s. Uh, but that's going on at this time period. There's also uh, a long-standing problem that long predates any of this. There's also concerns about Catholics and the working class. Uh, and the reason that is is because ever since uh, Western society uh, has industrialized in the 19th century. Basically, religion in general in the Western world is, is middle class. The working classes tend to abandon it. And I mention this because in France, you have a bunch of priests who try to do something about this. Uh, they form what's called the worker priest movement. They actually go into factories in, in Paris and other places and try to minister to workers. It kind of I actually have some sympathy with it because I have sympathy with the working classes, but it really quickly becomes uh, a political program. It gets captured by commies, naturally. Um, but uh, but uh, eventually it gets to a point where Pius XII has to actually uh, shut down the movement. But this is a long-term problem. It, it, the church is run by and for a single class with its interests, with its understanding of the world. And I think it is a problem. It cuts us all. I mean, I, most priests I know, again, in most parishes, I don't think they could talk intelligibly to someone who, you know, is a plumber or a carpenter. Or my, fa my father owned a lawn maintenance business. I, I, went to, I went to graduate school, but he was, you know, my father would have nothing to do with most priests because they, they don't know how to talk to them. They know people who have 12 degrees like me, so. Um, uh, and so I'm part of the problem. <laughs> but um, so you have those undercurrents. You also have an undercurrent, I mentioned this earlier, there was an uptick in the early part of the post-war period. In Europe, of course, it doesn't last. In fact, it doesn't last actually in the States. By the end of the 1950s, you do have a, a start, a start, starting to have a decline, even in the United States, although it peaks, uh, weekly mass attendance peaks in the United States in 1958, same date as the Bible, uh, at 74%. <laughs> Amazing. Uh -huh. But it's already beginning to sort of dip earlier and faster in Europe. And you might not notice that if you were a, a, you know, a devout parishioner in Europe. The bishops notice it. <clears throat> They're very, very aware of it. They're definitely aware of falling vocations in Europe. And I mention this because I think, you know, what Father kind of alluded to in his talk is that a lot of what happens at Vatican II, I think, is pushed by Europeans. European bishops were concerned about their church, and I think they're pushing what they think are remedies for their problems, I think, at the council more than anything else. Another problem that uh, sometimes the pre-Vatican II church gets accused of is of, especially the, the Vatican itself, is being authoritarian. That is, its governance is somehow overly harsh. And I mention this partly because I, I used to think this was a kind of a liberal, progressive Catholic myth. And in some ways it is. In some ways it's just fun to blame everything on the pre-Vatican II church. In some ways, however, I think that's actually correct. Um, they could be really harsh uh, in the way they discipline theologians. I mentioned some of those Nouvelle theologians who, don't get me wrong, I think their ideas, <laughs> they're right to be suspicious of. They could sometimes deal with them in a really 
I don't think they were the best way to deal with them. Uh, one of the big things is actually wrong with the way the church worked and still works actually is they could be really, really secretive. In particular, there's this uh, mentality, I'll give you an example of this. Um, the bishops of the UK in 1960 issued a, a, hired a statistician to do a report on how Irish immigrants were integrating into the church in the UK. Well, he did the report and it turns out they were integrating into the church, they were leaving. <laughs> and the bishops didn't like it, so they leaned on the statistician, he never published it. Uh, and this is something I think it's, I think it's uh, a part of a pattern long predates the council of simply not wanting to face up to hard realities, of shooting the messenger, of telling people that things are going wrong and not wanting to hear it. And I say this because I, I have to bring this back to something else that also begins in the immediate post-war period, uh, ugly though it is to talk about it, and that's the sexual abuse crisis. We all know this spikes in the 1960s and 70s. We all know the role that um, the sexual revolution plays in that, but it actually begins in most countries almost as soon as the war ends. States, the first cases start in 45, Germany in 1946, uh, Netherlands and Belgium in 1945 or so, a little later, 50s, I think, in, the, in France, 1950s in Poland. We don't know about Italy, by the way, because I just found this out. They don't actually keep records of priests, of children who've been molested by priests, which is a terrible thing. I'm assuming, I'm assuming by the way, that's because of the influence of the Vatican. But uh, there is this sense of not being able to face up to things. And I, I say all that because, of course, what's going to happen, as you'll see in the 1960s, is Catholic attitudes of, of lay people, anyway, are beginning to change about towards sex. And um, one of the things besides sexual abuse, obviously, is probably playing into this, I'll go back to the war. Because again, when you have the war, you send guys off to boot camp, you send them off to war. One of the things they have access to they didn't have back home is recreational sex. Prostitutes are a part of warfare, unfortunately. Uh, even, even military wives, husbands are gone. Uh, think of Britain, right? British war wives, war brides. Some of them didn't didn't get married, <laughs> even though they were already, uh, you know. So there, there's all this that sort of undermining of things. I'll probably ha had an effect as well. And we know I don't have stats for World War II, but we know that, for example, in France after World War One, which was devastating enough, um, rates of venereal disease contraction of it went way up after World War One. Uh, rates of uh, births out of wedlock went way up after World War One. So this probably had an effect of breaking down barriers about sexuality. Among the generation, by the way, that raised the baby boomers, that's one thing to keep in mind here. They already probably brought some of this back is one of the things that uh, you should probably keep in mind. And of course, the last thing I'll mention is the pill, which in 1960 is invented, and that's already on the cusp of the council itself as well. And so all these trends kind of come to fruition at the end of the 1950s when you have a change in the pontificate, finally. Uh, in 1958, Pius XII dies in 1958, and John XXIII is elected. And all these things kind of do, he comes to symbolize a lot of this later on. Catholic social aspirations, desire for, for better relationships with other religions, um, but also the influence of those theologians, the ones who had challenged church teaching earlier, they all get rehabilitated by the time, by the time he becomes pope. Um, Again, within a few years, being disciplined, they're now having really serious influence uh, on, uh, on the church. And in fact, when he's elected, if you don't know um, about uh, John XXIII, he was supposed to be a caretaker. He was like in his late 70s, he was pretty old, and he didn't live that long. But uh, as soon as he gets into, gets into the chair, uh, he does start making changes. 
one of the first things he does actually in 1958 when he's elected is he enlarges the College of Cardinals. Uh, up until then, uh, Pius V in 1570 had issued a, a law that it should not exceed 70 bishops. Uh, he gets rid of that, so there's no more limit after that, and he makes, I think, like 17 new cardinals, so he enlarges uh, the nature of the, of the college. And of course, most famously, he calls for a council, uh, which uh, it's, it's, it's true enough, um, I, I tend to agree with Father, that it shouldn't have been called. Um, there were, was talk of calling a council, however. Going back to Pius XI, there was talk about calling a council, mainly to finish the work of the First Vatican Council, which ended prematurely, if you don't know, that was held in 1870. Uh, Italy was being overrun by the new Italian state, they were taking over Rome, and they didn't finish what they had started, and there was some sense of wanting to do this. I think Pius XI and XII wisely held off on it, obviously. Um, but he does other things almost immediately. By 1960, he has called for a commission to revise canon law. Uh, and he creates in 1960 this Secretariat for the Promotion of Christian Unity. So this idea of ecumenism, which again, it, it predates the World War II actually. There are people pushing for this, um, wanting to have better relationships with other, other uh, religions. But also, as you can see there, wanting to try to uh, gain reunion. And I say all this, to, uh, you look at his teaching, if you go take a look at his encyclicals, for the most part, it seems fairly traditional uh, when you read his encyclicals. To give you an example, um, one of the last ones he published, I think it's, I don't have the date here, but uh, he published an uh, encyclical on penance, penitence, uh, penitentiam agere, in which he said, talking about the coming council, because it's already been called for, he says, Vatican II will, quote, be publicly, the goal of the task of Vatican II will be, quote, publicly to reaffirm God's rights over mankind, uh, whom Christ's blood has redeemed, and to re reaffirm the duties of redeemed mankind toward his God and Savior, unquote. Um, not exactly how the council turned out, um, as it turns out. And in fact, up until uh, the council meets, he's issuing documents like um, um, Veterum et Sapientia, if you know what this is, an apostolic constitution. He issued in 1962, calling for a more intensive study of Latin in seminaries. So uh, again, what you're seeing probably is a, a struggle in the Curia, because I'm assuming he doesn't write any of these himself. Uh, John XXIII was not an intellectual. And so what you have is seemingly is this, you know, most of his advisors are pretty traditional. What's going to change, of course, is by the time the council opens in 1960, uh, 1962, uh, it seems like those, those theologians that have been um, rehabilitated, that have been wanted to challenge things earlier, they seem to have won the day. Because his opening speech to the council sounds very different. It's, and he was, he was an optimistic person anyway. He'd always been optimistic. But it's... Uh, full of optimism, talking about the church needing to open its windows, talking about the church needing to update the faith and all this stuff. And so you kind of have uh, at the end of this period where I guess in some ways it makes sense. There's all this uptick in your material life. There's all this uptick in, you know, hey, Catholics are being taken seriously by the wider world. Isn't that a good thing? Which feeds into a, um, a sense of optimism that informs the council and which I think, uh, obviously I agree with Father about this, it was a, it was a naive uh, sense of optimism in a lot of ways. Uh, and I come back just to end all this, I was thinking about this when I, I presented all this stuff to you. You sometimes get, again, these debates about what the church was like um, before the council, and you know, it, was, it was the absolute pillar, it was the greatest time in the church's history, it was the worst time, right? Uh, and in fact, there's truth in both of those claims. There's a lot of light in the, uh, the pre-Vatican II church. Um, the reverence for the priesthood, 
um, the devotional life. I think probably all of you who love the Latin Mass appreciate, right? Um, it's just no longer there. The fact that you have those, you know, quote unquote, plausibility structures, that you have reinforcement for your faith. One of the things, of course, we all, you know, if you, you're faithful, you struggle with days, you, you have to have reinforced 24 7 around you is the total opposite. Uh, and that's something I think everybody, if they're honest, would say, okay, it may have had its problems. <laughs> that's what you need to live out the faith. You can't live the faith alone. You cannot. I know I've tried. <laughs> uh, um, but you also have the spread of the faith to Africa. You have the spread of the faith to Asia. You have the fight against communism. All these good things you can take away from it. On the other hand, of course, there is darkness as well. Um, I didn't mention it, but your father alluded to it. What you have in some of these new Val theologians, they, they, they want to go back and pick up certain theses of the modernists of the early 20th century and try to, and try to pick them out of, their, uh, out of the modernists' uh, larger context and see if they can't start them into church teaching. Um, this, of course, is a, a, a dangerous thing. Um, the failure of the working classes continuously to appeal to a large body of people that have left the church, that's obviously a, a bad thing. Um, and of course, sexual abuse. Uh, the beginnings of it in this period, we can't really separate that. You know, again, I don't want to soft pedal what happened in the 60s and 70s. There were things there that made it so much worse. But it was already there. And then I think about this as well because you know, if you don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Latin mass scholar. Uh, I'm actually a member of the Ordinary of the Chair of St. Peter. Um, and, um, but as I've become more and more traditional in my thinking, one of the things you wonder about is, why does no one ever, why can't you criticize the Second Vatican Council? I'm not talking about theologically or anything like that. Why can't you even say, well, maybe, maybe it didn't work? If you say that out loud, you'll be accused of, well, you, if you doubt the council, you're doubting the church's authority. You're doubting, why can't you even say anything about it? This inability to say anything but happy thoughts about what happened in the 60s. And I thought, well, that must be this, you know, this post-Vatican II modernist thing. But in fact, of course, the church had the same problem before the council. There were already things they couldn't. It's bad when you can't own up to harsh realities. That's what I loved about Father's talk, actually, is that he talked about hard things to you. Like, you cannot ignore things like that. And it's not... Look, I know dissenters are horrible to the church's teaching, but sometimes people aren't, they're not trying to, not every criticism is a dissent. Not every, you know, not, and I know, and I say this because this isn't limited to the church, of course. Uh, look at your political leaders. Uh, they simply, you know, I mean, I never thought I'd see the day when a president would walk away from questions like he does, the current one, uh, at a press conference. Just not answer things in the most, you know, perfunctory way. But, this seems to be, this seems to be, I'm a Gen Xer, by the way, so it's not my fault. I'm not a baby member, but there does seem to be a certain, a certain pattern among leadership that came to, came to power in the 1960s that doesn't want to have to answer for anything. And I think this is, again, looking back at the pre-Vatican II church, you can see what was lost. It makes you, it should make you, it should make you sad in some ways, because those things were good. Um, but as always, as always, as there is today, there is darkness and light. Uh, and you guys, in some ways, you're here, you're faithful, you're adhering to the traditional mass, you were part of the light. Um, that doesn't mean, I think, going forward in the future, you can't look away from the darkness. You're gonna have to look at it and confront it. Um, even as you try to adhere to those good things um, that God's given you. All right, that is it.